Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in History. Um, I'm Sam Backer, um, a PhD candidate in history at Johns Hopkins University, and I'm here today with Billy Coleman, a uh, postdoctoral fellow at the Kinder Institute in the University of Missouri, uh, who's just published uh, Harnessing Harmony, Music, Power, and Politics in the United States, 1788 to 1865. Um, Billy, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Sam. Thanks so much for, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so, yeah, this was a, a really exciting and really interesting work. Um, I, I think a lot about popular culture and not so popular culture uh, and the arts. <laughs> um, and so it was really it was really a, a thrill to see a, a book that placed those concerns so centrally um, in the midst of a, of a number of, of political questions um, and kind of uh, political questions with, I'd say, a hefty historiography behind them and to see the questions of music really give a new vantage point onto a lot of those dynamics and issues. Um, So I guess to start with, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about um, how you came to this project and, and, and how you really got interested in the connections between music and politics. Sure. Well, I, by the time I got to graduate school, I always knew that I definitely wanted to write something about music and politics in American history. Um, it had just been something that I had always been interested in for a, a, a variety of, of reasons to do, I guess, with my biography. I was born in the United States and then moved to Australia and um, was in a in a band as, as I mean, like a lot of people who write about music, they usually start out as someone who wanted to play it. And I guess I'm no exception to that, um, rule, uh, for better or worse. Better, um, better. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I always, when I was an undergrad would try and find, you know, courses that would let me write an essay on, you know, anything relevant to the topic of that course. And I would just use that to write about some kind of connection between music and in history or politics, because those that happened to be what I was what I was majoring in in both of those. So um, by the time I got to grad school, like I'd, I'd been doing that a bit, and I just sort of um, I knew I wanted to try and take that further. Um, and when I started, I really. I I assumed I was going to do a project that is quite different from the one that it turned into, which is probably not an unusual thing uh, for any historian. Um, but, you know, I got into this thinking um, that I was going to write about sort of grassroots politics. Like that was kind of my assumption about how, you know, music and politics generally came together. Um but as I got into it, um, there was a few reasons why I ended up emphasizing not that grassroots is not important and that it's not an important, you know, central in some ways component of music and politics, but it's not the whole story. Um, and uh, people seem to have written about, you know, music from the bottom up before. Um and when I started doing it, I, I found myself in positions where I wasn't personally finding evidence that helped me write about, you know, the music of enslaved people. Um, I didn't find, you know, I wasn't personally finding evidence that was helping me write meaningful things about uh, songs in sort of early 19th century labor movements um, or something like this. Um, so I found that kind of my place to tell a story tended to be emphasizing that, that music could be about shaping um, popular culture 
from above, from a kind of more elite vantage point um, rather than from below. And I ended up feeling that is um, actually an important part of the conversation because no one gets to enter into a, a kind of political conversation on an equal footing, right? Um, and that's true sort of if you're having an, an, a conversation about economics or you're having a conversation um, about labor movements. Um, it's the same thing if you're, you know, creating music, right? If just because you have a voice doesn't mean that your voice is inherently going to be perceived as equal to everyone else. So if you have economic power, if you have political power, if you have cultural power, um, then you tend to be able ha to have the power to shape the very kind of cultural, um, political culture in which the sort of meaning of that music is understood. So um, I end up feeling that, you know, getting a sense of why it is that people put music into American political life um, was a question that can be answered in more ways than it had been answered. Um, and so I ended up coming at it from that perspective. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I think of it um, or th thought of it as a move almost akin to some of the more recent works in the history of mm -hmm. capitalism, which is taking the culture and structures of power very seriously. Well, definitely. I mean, in the context of sort of early American political culture, I kind of entered into this um, historiographic landscape where uh, when I was first trying to figure out what I was going to write, I was, you know, I found this sort of, uh, at the time, relatively new approach to music and, or, well, just to culture and politics in the early republic in general um, called the, the sort of new political history or the new new political history, as they called themselves, um, kind of encapsulated in a in a book called Beyond the Founders, an edited collection. Um, and their approach was really to say that you know we can't write the political history purely you know from the context of the founding fathers, right? And then we have to get beyond that. Um, and you know that is a pure, it's an incredibly laudable goal. It's an incredibly important important thing um, to be doing. Um, and I felt, you know, that I wanted to find a place for myself in that conversation. I was like, once I saw that, I was like, okay, great. At least there's some people who might be interested in reading, you know, something about, you know, the, how music can contribute to things, um, in, in political culture, in the early America. Um, but I didn't want to say the same things that they were saying, um, I guess. And I, I just, I felt that, you know, they may have underplayed a little bit of where, um, you know, the importance of top-down power, um, even in the context of sort of trying to excavate how disenfranchised people can contribute uh, to political culture at the same time. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that's really interesting is, um, and, and maybe in some ways, as, as you said, this kind of uh, follows from some of the principal historiographic concerns of this period, but but that, that move you make to not just... Um, kind of connect music and politics, but really to put music at the center of politics or a center of a set of political moves in this period of time strikes me as, as a real innovation. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. I'd, I'd like to think so. I mean, I think um, one of the assumptions I went into with this project was that if I can create a musical perspective on the political culture of the early republic, that there's got to be something fresh in that, right? That it has to be um, something that is new and innovative to some degree. Um, and I felt like, you know, it's possible that historians might have been dissuaded from doing that in the past because there is a there is sometimes a kind of sense that music is like a, a, a specialist kind of primary source um, that you need to have special skills uh, to interpret it in a kind of correct way. Um, and this can be true. There is, and I'm not trying to say that like musicology is like a, a useless um, discipline in general. Like I rely in 
like incredibly strongly on a lot of really great musicology um, in order to to write any of the things that I did. Um, but all is to say that you know to to legitimately interpret a, a piece of music doesn't mean that you have to have um, working knowledge of how that you know piece of music works on a kind of mechanical level. Um, it can be useful to know that, but you don't have to know that. Just like, you know, if we I- interpret a, a, a letter or a piece of correspondence, um, it can be useful to have like a really great background knowledge in how paper was made and how ink was made um, and, you know, where all those materials came from and how that came together. But you don't necessarily have to make that the most important part of interpreting um, what a letter is about. So um, I wanted to try and see... Um, what music could offer that was um, potentially uh, different to, um, you know, other ways of approaching this. And one of the things that I found was, you know, the most, um, the best opportunity about it is that whenever people make music, it has to be a deliberate decision. Like people, you know, especially before recording technology exists, um, people can't make music and they especially can't make music and affiliate it to any kind of political cause without consciously deciding that that is something that is worth doing, that it's like worth taking the effort to do that. And so I sort of conceived this to myself is like that there is always an in there somewhere if there is evidence there for me to find it. If someone has put music somewhere, that means that there is a decision that has been made that I can try to understand um, or access in some way, shape, or form. And usually when people make those kinds of decisions, they're not doing it just because they just vaguely love music um, or they just sort of think that it's fun or something like that. They're usually doing it because it is part of uh, shaping things in a way that they think um, is going to be better for society, I guess, um, that is, you know, going to contribute to a political cause that that fits um, what they believe is is right, that's going to create liberty, that's going to create unity, and that's going to do one or the other of those things in the appropriate order. Um, And, I mean, one thing that I found in sort of categorizing this is that at least in the context of, like, Anglo music, culture in the United States, um, the values that people have in democracy can be reflected in the ways in which they sort of um, disseminate music into a political context. So on one hand, um, there can be people who decide that music is important because it's important to celebrate the nation and to celebrate um, the people, um, to give them respect. Um, And this is incredibly important for for many for good reason. You know, at the beginning of the Republic, it's just started. Um, There are, you know, huge empires um, that are incredibly powerful throughout the world that the United States is trying to be a power among that in many cases are literally literally fighting, you know, wars against. Um, And this sense that they need to um, celebrate themselves, place them among that kind of company and show that they can kind of turn the tables on people that are supposed to be better than them, that becomes an important kind of tradition of American sort of political music, right? And it's something that a song like Yankee Doodle fits into, right? We're going to sort of um, prove that we're better than than the British, even if they think that we um, are not as good as them. Um, a song like uh, The Hunters of Kentucky during the War of 1812, does a similar um, kind of thing. Um, It kind of celebrates the people, um, typically in this context, construed as kind of a white, male, masculine vision of that people. Whereas there is another sort of trajectory of this um, that I tend to focus on a bit more in my book, uh, which is that you can use music to try and improve the country and the nation and its people. And that that is a patriotic thing as well, and perhaps even more patriotic than just sort of celebrating the people as they are. 
So we need to give music to people um, that can help fashion them into being the best kind of civilization that we believe that we can be, um, that is as good as these European civilizations that we've broken away from, that is potentially going to be even better. But people don't necessarily always assume that the majority of Americans are capable of just doing that by themselves. And so part of one of the kind of reasons that people put music into these political situations is to try and literally make the people better. And that by doing that, they're they're doing the most patriotic thing to make the country better, even if they're not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, respecting the people as they are, they hope there's, they, they have a, a, a belief that there are, you know, certain people that know better um, and that have a kind of duty to school the nation um, to become, you know, something closer to their uh, purported values, to their potential, rather than sort of their sort of lowest common denominator. Yeah. And, and in the book, you kind of describe this as a this more conservative, less, maybe for lack of a better word, populist vision of American musical culture. And you tie it pretty specifically to the long-term, I guess, like social and political federalist project. Um, And so I'm wondering if you could talk a a little bit about that, about how music becomes tied to this specific political force in American life. And then also a little bit about um, the kind of theories of music that underpin that approach. Sure. Um, So... One of the main reasons that music initially gets tied to what I end up calling a a federalist tradition of of music and politics um, is to do with the basic circumstance that when the United States first creates its first constitutional government, it happens to be populated for the most part by people who end up affiliating with the federalist party. And as the first people in power, they tend to be um, predominantly concerned um, with unity, right? Um, That we need to have a united nation and that people um, need to be, in particular, united in support of their leaders, right? If they've elected their leaders, they've elected their leaders and they can't sort of go back and say that we wish you did this other thing um, you know, you have to sort of give the leaders um, the reign uh, to do what they believe is best. Um, and if people aren't united, then this whole thing is going to fall apart. Um, if you give people too much democracy to decide everything themselves, then you can just look at the French Revolution um, and you can see, uh, you know, what is going to happen uh, if we're not careful Um, about how we unite together. And so this emphasis on unity for Federalists is incredibly important and it makes sense for them given that they are already in power. There's there's nothing sort of um, confusing for them about why, you know, you may want to support the people in power when when they're already there. So music is really useful for them um, when they start thinking about ways that they can do this. Ideally, they don't want to try to coerce people into supporting them. They want people to be freely kind of persuaded into this. That is the best possible um, way um, to govern. They kind of look back to ancient examples of like, um, you know, Orpheus building the wall of Thebes, sort of, um, you know, in in a kind of ancient story about, you know, a, a great leader only needs to kind of play the music of his instrument and everyone just sort of follows and, and the magic kind of happens. Um, and this is, you know, very appealing to federalists who um, want the nation to kind of realize the wisdom um, of their own leadership and, and rally behind them. Um, and music is appealing for um, those reasons, for a range of reasons. Um, one is that music is compared to a lot of other popular political tactics more associated um, with uh, religion and more associated with sort of private home life um, than other things. 
um, that you would typically find in parades or, or something like that. So usually when people had heard music um, in this period, it typically was heard in church, in a church-affiliated space, like in a, a, a singing school, um, or it was heard at home. Sometimes it could be heard in all sorts of other places as well, but sort of the most common places that they would hear music is in those environments. So if they can get people um, to start singing patriotic songs in support of their leaders, in, um, in support of the nation, it kind of helps to infuse um, all of the kind of respectable, positive aspects um, of these ostensibly sort of non-political parts of people's lives and put them in the service of uniting the nation. Um, this links to kind of emotional um, emotional understandings of, and fields of like sensibility um, where uh, people had this sense that, you know, if, if we can unite a patriotic feeling in the nation, then we can, you know, bring everyone together under the same understanding, under the same kind of, it sounds abstract, but it's like under the same kind of sense that we agree on what is fundamentally good and just and that we can unite together by sort of sharing in the same feelings. And music is a really useful way in a kind of culture of sensibility to be able to reach um, those feelings out to anyone, right? No matter if it is a president or if it is the most disenfranchised person that you can think of, you know, everyone is affected and accessible. Uh, music is accessible to all those ranges of people and it makes it just that much more appealing to elites to try and harness it for this purpose. Um, and, in, and just in addition to some of those like religious overtones um, and sort of emotional overtones, it kind of connected to at the time what were some popular theories um, that were sort of more scientifically based. That was this idea that, you know, music is fundamentally like physical vibrations in the air that would actually um, physically move people. And if they're all physically being moved at the same way at the same time, um, this is, you know, something that is innately going to help people actually feel the same feelings. Um, and that was a really, uh, you know, in, you know, important and appealing, appealing way for why um, a lot of these elites uh, saw music as, as, a, as a power that can be harnessed um, from above um, and, and, and create this more unified patriotic society. Wow, that's really fascinating. So, so just to, to dial in on this a little bit more. So it's not just that, for instance, um, these elites see music as a particularly appealing metaphor for kind of a, a, a higher, a naturalized hierarchy, but, and it's not just that they see music as a, as a respectable space of performance um, tied to, like you said, the family, tied to the church, but also that there's kind of in this kind of age of enlightenment sense that there's also a belief that in fact doesn't just represent these things, it can actually physically enact them in listeners. Yeah, totally. Um, it, it's true. And one of the more remarkable things is that like, uh, so William Billings um, writes the famous kind of revolutionary hymn tunes like Chester. Um, and he includes those theories. He doesn't author them himself, but he includes those theories in some of these really popular um, pieces of sort of hymnody that come, patriotic pieces of hymnody that come out uh, during the revolution. So, you know, it can sound like these highfalutin enlightenment ideas, and in some ways they are, but they're actually remarkably widespread throughout throughout society william billings himself is you know you know a kind of he's a, a a music writing person but he's you know basically um you know a, a relatively low status um you know professional himself he, he's not a rich elite person in his own in his own right um and uh rebecca bechtold has has written a, a really great article that's in the journal of the early republic that focuses quite a lot um, on these sort of scientific um, resonances um, of, of music and how that sort of informed all these aspects of, of early American sort of 
uses of music and politics. So coming down from this, uh, like, I would say abstract sphere, but you just said it, it is in fact not an abstract sphere, but coming down to the kind of more um, pragmatic political uses, how was this federalist interest in music um, kind of ex- expressed uh, in, in kind of, um, yeah, in, in, in political activity? It would usually be expressed through people who considered themselves to be elite, um, elite federalists writing songs <laughs> um, for other people um, to sing. Uh, so Francis Hopkinson um, arguably sort of begins this to some extent, like just before Washington is um, inaugurated as the first president uh, by writing a whole bunch of songs in honour of George Washington um, for everyone uh, to, you know, play at home um, on their piano. It was literally called like Seven Songs for the Piano or something something pretty much like that. Um, and it actually had eight songs in it, but I think he just he wrote like an extra one and then realized that he'd already sent it off to the printer or I don't know something. He, he it was actually eight, but it was called seven. Um, but so he writes stuff like that. Um, his son, Joseph Hawkinson, uh, will write songs like hail Columbia, which is still, um, a relatively well-known patriotic, um, anthem, I guess. Um, and they would frame them, you know, not as political songs. Right, they would frame them as patriotic songs um, that uh, have nothing to do with partisanship, um, and that are purely trying to help people rise above partisanship, um, to uh, rise above the kind of pettiness of all that. You know, in a context of a uh, a republic where you know people are generally, at least in the abstract, meant to be averse to partisanship. Um, they claim that this, these songs are helping people actually live out those dreams while at the same time uh, doing it in a way uh, that will, will usually support uh, federal, uh, federalist presidents, um, federalists' um, ideals and values, especially these values around unity. Um, I've been emphasizing unity a lot, but it becomes, a, 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 to an extent, a, a, a partisan kind of cleavage because... Federalists end up emphasizing this fact that you need to be united before you can be free. Like if you want to have liberty, it's like unity is the precondition for that. Um, whereas uh, Jeffersonian Republicans um, who emerge in opposition to a lot of these federalists tend to emphasize um, that, you know, liberty is actually sort of more important in the first instance, right? You don't have to just unite everyone in order to be, to be free first. So um, it, it does sort of get into these partisan cleavages. And if you sort of have a, a, a sense of awareness about that, um, you, can, you can see how, you know, if, if Hail Columbia is written right during the XYZ affair, during this sort of period of heightened partisanship, um, written in support of a Federalist president, but just not using his name, all the Republicans are like, this is ridiculous. This is clearly partisan. Um, whereas... You know, the Federalists are like, how could you say this is partisan? There's nothing partisan about this. This is purely patriotic. And if you can't see how patriotic that is, it shows how partisan you are. Um, and, you know, these are kinds of arguments that aren't, you know, particularly uh, unique to that era, right? This is the same kinds of arguments, um, sort of cultural, political arguments um, happen in the 21st century um, as well. And then my book kind of, uses the Star-Spangled Banner as an example of the culmination of that kind of federalist political tactic, um, at least in terms of it being successful. Most of the time when federalists do this, it's, it is nothing like a, a kind of unambiguous success that just unites everyone because um, music is never really that straightforward. Um, but there are sort of unique circumstances around the Star-Spangled Banner, the circumstances of its creation, um, the the fact that Francis Scott Key is a federalist but happens to be a Southern federalist who has shifted to being from being, you know, against the war to being for the war, which sort of links up with a lot of his Republican opposition at the time. Um, uh, and it just ends up being, you know, 
written in the service of this glorifying, you know, military victory. And people sort of in that specific instance don't tend to emphasize the the partisan nature of what Key was doing, despite the fact that if you look at a lot of the things that Key was interested in around the time, you could see that, you know, the fact that he is a Federalist lawyer does impact on the way that he thinks about partisanship and uh, about patriotism. So, I mean, one of the pieces of evidence that I have about this is the fact that, you know, both before he writes the anthem and after he writes the anthem, he's kind of obsessed with this project of creating a nonpartisan newspaper, which he argues is, you know, that's what the nation needs to cure itself of all its political ills. We need a nonpartisan newspaper. But he frames this nonpartisan newspaper as being explicitly nonpartisan, um, but against the current administration. Um, so it's a kind of vision of nonpartisanship that isn't exactly as sort of patriotic um, or, or nonpartisan as, as people might expect of Key, given the place that he holds as this kind of, uh, in popular culture, as this kind of more or less like a blank slate for patriotism, um, where he kind of emerges, uh, ex- exists for this moment of patriotism, writes a song, um, and there is sort of nothing else sort of to his persona or to his background that kind of impacts on that. Um, so I, I decided to try and see what happens when you you sort of put the politics um, of his of his personality closer to the to the to the center of the story of what he was writing. And and, and I think uh, my sense is that more generally, you feel that um, that to a certain extent, these federalist musicians or uh, composers almost were taken at their word. Right, that this music is seen as nonpartisan, and as a result, a pretty important federalist um, addition or, or strand in kind of the evolution of American political culture and American electoral political culture more generally has kind of been overlooked. Right. In some ways, yeah. I mean, in some ways, they're taking it their word. But one of the things is that, like, a lot of these federalists are. Uh, 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 of writing this music and, and doing and sort of thinking about music this way from positions of power, right? And they frame what they're doing as something that should be taken at its word. Um, and so, therefore, you know, they will go along and say, you know, Joseph Hopkinson will later on, you know, write down claims that when he wrote Hail Columbia, everyone just like, united behind it and everyone decided that it was the greatest patriotic song that they'd ever heard whereas the reality is that that is just so far from the truth that it's like laughable like as soon as it came out republicans just decried it completely um but it speaks to the larger point that i have that power makes a difference right that if you have the power to frame what the song means either sort of in retrospect or at the time you have a greater chance of being able to enter into the politics of what that music actually does mean to people, right? The song itself just kind of sits there, but the politics over how it should be interpreted and what it means is in some ways like where the real kind of politics over this lies. Um, at the same time, um, I I think you are definitely right in in interpreting what I was writings that sort of over time people do in some ways take federalists at their at their word with this but this is more so in a way because you know federalists don't actually stay in sort of explicit political power explicit political positions um for all that long um and once they lose access to being able to you know routinely get elected by anyone anywhere for the most part a lot of those people who would have had aspirations to do that but still had, you know, Federalist values, either they were Federalists or they were the, you know, the, the next generation of people whose parents had been, um, they move more into a kind of civic space and they decide that they can try and instead of sort of explicitly defining um, the political sphere or the patriotic sphere, they can define um, what culture is good and they can... They can say, you know, that the the United States, if it's going to be a great nation, if it's going to have a great people, they need to appreciate um, this kind of music and not that kind of music. And they need to, you know, understand um, how to become better 
and they can kind of insert themselves and express sort of their own power in those ways. Um, and that kind of engagement with politics, uh, sorry, with music in, in politics isn't always as explicitly questioned um, so long as they partner themselves with um, cultural elites in that sense. So what a lot of these federalists do, um, and it's not purely um, an example that happens only in the sphere of, of music, though that's what I focus on, um, but they'll partner in civil civic society with like elites in different fields um, who, so, so in music, you know, there'll be a whole bunch of predominantly federalists who will get together all the sort of best musicians in town um, in say Philadelphia or Boston or whatever, and they'll create uh, a musical organization that is then sort of the best musical organization in town, or at least that's how it bills itself. Um, and it's, you know, funded um, better because it has this sort of connection to um, sort of um, potentially out of power, but nonetheless sort of uh, political elites or legacy political elites. Um, but once they combine that with cultural expertise, um, you know, it, it's, it can be more difficult to make the argument against specific music being good because a lot of those cultural elites um, feel particularly good actually about being recognized for their expertise. Um, and, you know, in the context of music, like a lot of musicians, uh, you know, coming up to around 1820 or something, you know, did not live or exist in a, a very uh, respected profession, right? It wasn't, it wasn't like people thought they were great because they were musicians and all of a sudden sort of you have this group of people that kind of come in and potentially as far as the musicians see it, you know, potentially are affording them some respect so long as they join with them in, in this sort of larger goal to, to shape um, America's cultural life. Some of the literature, uh, it, it reminds me a lot of the kind of literature on sacralization in quite a bit later in the 19th century, in these kind of projects of cultural reform that really take off um, especially in the Gilded Age. Um, and it's really interesting to hear similar things happening so early and also happening, again, I guess, once again, in, in relationship to um, politics. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Lawrence Levine's work on that is is the kind of foundational foundational text. And sometimes, I mean, people overlook because he has such a famous aspect of it on Shakespeare, Um that actually he has this huge, like in terms of length, there is like a huge chapter on music in there and musical organizations, um, which obviously I found um, really helpful. But you are totally right that, I mean, one of the things that I do that I'm not entirely unique at all about doing um, anymore, but that is to kind of pull that, you know, interpretation back in time, right? That it isn't only once you get to the Gil Gilded Age that you know these these ideas of kind of um, uh, hegemony in some ways in in the in the cultural sphere, sort of cultural distinction, um, this kind of stuff. It's not unique to sort of the late nineteenth century. Um, it is you know very uh, you know <laughs> very strong um, in the in the earlier part of it um, as well. And and just. To follow up on that a little bit i was also wondering about how um because I mean, a major part of kind of that late 19th century story um and i don't know how or in what way it plays out earlier is the kind of tensions not just between kind of reformists trying to uplift the body politic but also between kind of middle class listeners um almost trying to push back against elite power as well Yes, yes. So some of this stuff does come into play. So um, what you have, so so one example in the book would be um, the Boston Academy of Music. Um, so in Boston, for the most part, up until around about the, the mid-1830s or so, um, elites hadn't really shown all that much interest in music. It had mostly been kind of more or less like middle-class um, people uh, who had been involved in it. Um, however, uh, that 
changes um, when a guy called Samuel Elliott takes over the leadership um, of the Boston Academy of Music. Um, and he is this, um, comes from a Federalist background. He's a politician. He is the mayor of Boston <laughs> at the time that he becomes uh, the president of the Boston Academy of Music. Um, and he transforms what had been essentially this like middle-class concern into um, a elite concern that fuses those middle-class interests together. So this is appealing to middle-class people to the extent that it does sort of meet some of their um, upward aspirations, right? A lot of middle-classness in this period um, does have overtones of like striving to you know, get a taste of elite culture. And you can do that increasingly during the antebellum period, right? And a piano is a great example, right? If you have a piano in the 1790s, it's like an unbridled extravagance that hardly anyone can afford unless you're incredibly rich in the scheme of, you know, the population as a whole. By the time you get to the 1840s, you know, it's far more uh, possible and likely that if you're a middle-class person that you can actually afford a piano and that shows sort of your upward mobility um it's more possible that you could afford i don't know like wedgwood china or you know all these kinds of things so having an elite concern there doesn't necessarily um you know counteract the fact that that there were middle class uh concerns at the same time um but it does you know create these uh, circumstances where, you know, elite power tends to be able to um, have a lot more sway in things that you don't necessarily even realize. So, I mean, one of the main things that the Boston Academy does, Boston Academy of Music under Elliot is that they push through legislation to put music teaching into the public school curriculum. Um, and they do this not to you know, give children uh, the chance to, you know, express their artistic selves um, by any means, but instead as a kind of um, tactic for trying to create a more orderly society in what they perceive to be a, a democratizing society that is sort of, you know, rolling out of control like they feel like everyone at this point seems to be able to think that they can do anything right that anyone is like capable of being a leader capable of um doing whatever they put their mind to the kind of uh so-called self-made man um ideal um but they don't actually think that that is a good way of uh organizing society and so as far as Elliot's concerned one way of counteracting that is to get kids to learn how to play music together because if they learn how to play music together they'll realize that everyone can't do everything right that if you are a soprano singer you can't sing the bass part if you're a bass singer you can't sing the alto part if you have a violin you can't just start playing the tuba part or whatever it is right and importantly there's only one person that can conduct <laughs> right there's only one person that can be the leader at one time and if anyone tries to do things that aren't suited to their situation, that aren't suited to them and their sort of natural um, uh, competencies, then it sounds horrible, right? Everything sort of goes wild and turns into chaos and, and there is nothing uh, that sounds any good. And, they'll, and it's an incredibly conservative view um, that is only a heartbeat or two away from a pro-slavery argument. Um, and that is why, you know, these elites put music into schools and in, into a public school curriculum in the first place. And they actually do it over the fact that, you know, they can't get enough people to vote for it, but they still push it in. Um, they still push it in anyway. That that's amazing. Uh, um, I, so, you know, the point is really just to beat it out of them almost <laughs> like, um, to really enforce <laughs> discipline through uh, music as like a as a as a yeah an innately hierarchical social structure. Yeah, it, I mean, as far as they were concerned, it, it proved the fact that hierarchy 
does exist, that it is important that everyone isn't actually equal, right? And that doesn't mean that everyone doesn't have an equal importance in society. That is an, that's a, a, you know, that is an important aspect to this, right? It, it says it, it is a philosophy or an ideology that emphasizes that, you know, everyone's role is important, right? If you're the violin part, that's an important role to play. You can't just decide to play someone else. Someone needs to play the violin part, right? It's important. Everyone needs to work together in society, doing the things that they're supposed to do for it to sort of work as a cohesive, productive, effective um, whole. So the cover of the book has this absolutely amazing image drawn from a piece of sheet sheet music, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, That is the General Harrison Log Cabin March and Quick Step with a log cabin and a barrel of cider and the side of the cabin is um is is music and there's a huge american flag and on the american flag is music and and i'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about this image and and about its um the role of the of music kind of in in the broader uh politics of, of the antebellum period yes so it is it is an amazing image yeah so all the all the stripes of the flag are all like musical staves um that that have the that have the song on it um and it's it's an image from the the 1840 presidential campaign um that that still is in some ways you know um renowned uh for the amount of um music that was involved in it um, particularly in support of the Whig candidate for president, uh, William Henry ha- Harrison. Um, and the image fits into the argument of that chapter, which is that basically whenever people had thought about music in elections, um, it seemed to me that for the most part they tended to be concerned about um, whether people were engaging in politics through hoopla, like through kind of frivolous means like music and culture or whether they were sort of persuaded or engaged in like serious issues um, like the economy or the depression that had just happened um, or the sub-treasury and and banking and and all this kind of stuff. Um, And it just struck me and still kind of strikes me as um, I personally find it hard to understand the idea that these two things are separate, right? That like engaging in a political campaign um, means you either are engaging in serious issues or you're engaging in some kind of cultural um, moment, cultural event, and that, you know, engagement in issues or, or not has like sort of nothing to do with, with culture. And so what I wanted to try and understand or do is like try and understand how people were participating um, particularly in that 1840 election, rather than than judge it, right? Because what often happens is that if it's if it's a distinction between frivolous engagement and hoopla and serious issues, there's like an assumption that if you're engaging in frivolous culture, that like you're not seriously engaged in politics, and that, that that's not real the engagement. Hoopla lobby. And that that's yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it all you know there was a big sort of. Uh, argument about this, um, I guess, at the at the end of the '90s, about you know whether this was a golden age of, of political participation. Um, but um, what I tended to find when it came to music in this campaign is, again, what I assumed in the first place was that sort of music would be an indication of grassroots interest, grassroots support, or at least the sort of intent to create grassroots interest and grassroots support. And I found that neither of those things were exactly um, correct. Um, What music was about, especially once you got to 1840, was for the most part actually not trying to get any new people interested in politics who weren't interested in it already. What it was trying to do was give people who already had political passions uh, a kind of excuse to be able to get involved in an explicitly partisan campaign, right? Um, No one wants to feel like they're just like a partisan hack. Um, And there is a kind of sense among many people at the time that, you know, 
um, where I found one person, right, who lived just across the street from the Philadelphia State House. Um, and he would talk about how one day there was like a partisan gathering, a partisan uh, speeches happening at that gathering and how, you know, there were people making these speeches that I used to think were like nice, upstanding uh, gentlemen or whatever. And they totally debased themselves by, you know, talking in these political speeches um, and, and proving that they were just partisan people. But like, weirdly, as far as I was concerned, as I was researching, like not all that much time would pass. And he would start talking about explicitly partisan things in exactly the same campaign happening outside his door um, with the same party. It's not like the party is necessarily changing. Um, and he would start talking about them as like these really great things that are actually really wholesome, um, that his family should, you know, all be a part of um, and that they did become a part of and they all loved it. And what he underlines in these descriptions are the fact that music is involved, <laughs> that musicians are there. Um, and so what music was doing in a lot of these instances was giving a kind of respectable sheen on potentially um, degrading partisan activity. Um, so it doesn't help people who wouldn't necessarily get involved get involved that much, but it does help people who are kind of hesitant to get involved become involved because they know that they can still be um, perceived as respectable people, as wholesome people, um, and that comes through in the image on the on the front of the book. It's you know it's the kind of image, um, the kind of detail on a piece of sheet music that is you know custom built to go on someone's parlor piano to show off you know the kind of beautiful images um, that you know you can bring into um, your home connect those uh, to a partisan campaign, but not see them um, as, as degrading things um, and see them as things that can easily sort of involve, um, you know, women or other people who uh, would potentially, uh, you know, supposedly uh, according to the kind of gender norms of the period, you know, have no place in a partisan parade. But if music is involved, um, it, it it makes a bit more um, it makes a bit more sense. It's a bit more um, accessible. So, and and the ability to use music as I guess what you could term almost like a permission structure for for political activity, it it, it really builds both on the kind of cultural federalist project of I guess uplift and refinement through music, and even goes back to the original idea of this is kind of um, a partisan or even anti partisan patriotic. Um, visions of national unity, right? It does, totally. I mean, one of the things that is important about the way especially Whigs used music is that, I mean, detractors can be like, well, you're just like emotionally manipulating people. Um, but one of the interesting things is like they don't seem to be worried about that at all. Like they are completely happy with the idea that if some people heard a, a Whig song and were sort of, uh, decided on the basis of that that, well, I'd better support, you know, William Henry Harrison rather than Martin Van Buren. They were actually really proud of that, but they weren't proud of it on the basis of emotional manipulation. They were proud of it on the fact that it was a kind of, they had this evangelical-like conviction that if people were hearing music and being, like, converted to the cause, that it proved something about their cause, right? That it proved that, like, being part of this campaign was about something deeper than partisan politics. It was something deeper than politics. There was a kind of deep moral truth to it, right? It was like it's a, it becomes something so much bigger, so much larger, um, and it kind of speaks to like an almost sense of religiosity that if people just sort of glimpse the vision of like the truth of what they're doing, um, that they will come to the cause um, and that if the music of the other side is not doing that, then maybe that says something about, uh, you know, the moral standing of that cause or that party. And if they don't have as many songs or they don't have any songs, then maybe that says something bad about, um, about their party as well. So um, 
as kind of the the, the tensions um, that eventually culminate in the Civil War uh, continue to rise, um, and kind of the the temperature of American politics continues to to increase over the next twenty five years, um, how does does music continue to play this kind of role? I mean, how do the um, the partisans of of, of uh, following elections um, think think about music? That's a good question. I mean, in some ways, the precedents set in 1840 when it comes to music being this kind of uh, moral force over elections, um, in some ways that doesn't necessarily change all that much. Um, whenever songsters come out, a lot of the prefaces um, will be... Uh, I mean, as far as I was concerned, like almost facsimiles of the kinds of things that were prefaced to songsters um, in 1840. I um, mean, oftentimes they'll even explicitly harken back to it and they'll be like, you know, this sort of music will sort of bring back the, the spirit of, of, uh, of, of music in, in 1840 or, or something like that. Um, so in that sense, things um, don't change too much in that sense, but there is definitely changes. Um, Part of it is um, 1840 is a kind of inflection point where this sort of we were talking earlier about the the cultures of sensibility. Um, and 1840 is an inflection point that is sort of the beginning of this process where that is changing into a culture of um, sentimentalism um, and, and instead of, of sensibility. Um, and what that starts to imply when it comes to, to music and things is that um, it's less about sort of trying to unite everyone in a sense of like common patriotic feeling and more a sense of like using music as a, as a kind of moral corrective. Um, uh, music kind of becomes something that um, helps people like I said, in that election kind of see things as being not explicitly um, publicly, masculinely political, but also part of like a more sentimental um, home life and home culture, a kind of parlor-based home culture. Um, and it contributes in some extent to like, you know, the, the desire of a lot of these parties to kind of extol a kind of egalitarian um, public sphere but kind of retain a sense of hierarchy and, and they do that through kind of through kind of culture um, and music in 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 sort of more um, private settings um, but the thing that is interesting is that the substance of that moral force and that moral corrective, um, becomes more and more um, separate and arguably kind of sectional over time. So the part of my book that I focus on the kind of post-1840 period, sort of over the 1850s, um, focus, focuses explicitly um, on this uh, amazing um, set of journals written by a guy called S. Willard Saxton, who no one particularly knows about. He's not a particularly um, uh, recognisable historical force for, you know, good reason. He doesn't actually himself do anything that is, like, historically significant on a kind of grand level. But he does leave this diary uh, that gives, you know, a few pages every day that ends up showing that he is this enormous music fan um, and um, a growing... Um, politically engaged person um, who becomes a, a very strong abolitionist. And one of the things that I trace through his diary sort of leading up to the Civil War is that initially, not completely unlike sort of these sort of culture of sensibility people um, back in the 1790s, he starts off in um, Brook Farm as a utopian sort of in this utopian space a literal utopian space uh, where he sees music as a sonic realization of the fact that there is a more just world, that there is a world that fits together 
um, and that makes sense. Um, and the catchphrase of that group um, is that there is a better time coming. Um, and he inhabits that kind of reality when he listens to music um, because he feels in that music that he is inhabiting a more just world um, and that it can exist because he's heard it. Um, and um, in doing that, I draw off uh, a book called um, Audiotopias by Josh Kuhn, who makes a really interesting theoretical argument. His The, the kind of actual material he works with tends not to be uh, from my period, but he argues that, you know, people like music in part because when they listen to it, they feel like they're communing with people who agree with them. Um, so when Saxton is listening to music, he is definitely feeling like that. But what happens is over time, um, he moves away from being sort of around sort of New England in the Boston area, looking for work. He's a journeyman printer. He goes into the South. He is someone who is like an avowed abolitionist in the South um, in the, the mid-1850s when it's sort of an increasingly dangerous time to be outspoken about that in many of these places. Um, and he continues to use music when he is in places like Memphis um, as an intellectual escape hatch, right? When he listens to music, he still literally communes with all his kind of favorite friends, his loved ones back at home, all these people who he feels agree with him on, you know, what a, a better world would be and one that explicitly um, does not involve slavery in it. Um, but as the country moves closer and closer to civil war, that situation proves to him more and more that essentially his intellectual construction about what a more just world would be clearly is not what everyone else thinks. Um, and so this sense of like music offering a moral corrective becomes tied to especially kind of different ideas over the politics of slavery. Um, and you'll have abolitionists um, making the point that, you know, music in their words is the handmaiden of liberty. Um, and that, you know, music, not unlike in these presidential campaigns in 1840, um, proves that abolition is a moral cause, is the right cause, because there's so many songs written in support of it. Um, and in comparison, there is not very many songs written in support of an explicit pro-slavery agenda. Um, there is an aspect of the kind of racism of abolitionists in making that kind of comparison in the sense that they don't necessarily, when they say that, um, consider the fact that blackface minstrelsy is you know pretty close in many cases to being an explicitly pro-slavery um, supporting um, artistic art form, um, but they're not thinking about it in those terms. They're still thinking you know in the sense that you know this is showing proving to them that what they think is good is not actually shared necessarily by the rest of the nation. Um, and so, it, music in that way, when it had initially been helping bring a sort of diverse. Uh, new nation together, at least theoretically. By the time you get to the Civil War, it's at least theoretically again convincing people um, that it is not as fundamentally connected as many people hope. Just because they're in this union doesn't seem to uh, show them that you know they believe in the same things. Yeah, and and I guess even. And this kind of pushes the boundaries of, of the work that you do here. But I mean, even it seems to me that that split between, uh, you know, maybe cultural politics and electoral politics that you trace in that chapter, I mean, continues on through the rest of the 19th century that the cultural politics of music remains extremely vital. But um, I mean, off the top of my head, I can't think of many examples of it being uh, the kind of claims that the Federalists or the Whigs are making of it uh, reappearing, at, at least in as prominent a way. Um, so you're so, yeah, so you're saying that it keeps going in that way, or that it that it changes? Oh, I guess I'm saying that the um, the kind of uh, the cultural politics of music seems 
to very much that that you that you trace as, as kind of being forged in this period seems to very much continue um right but whether it's whether um in in that switch i i guess from sensibility to sentimentality whether it maintains the the electoral valences that uh were once ascribed to it i guess um I mean, I don't know. I guess that's the question. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, that's, yeah. I mean, I think that is probably true. Like you say, I mean, I don't explicitly focus on that period, but I, I, I do think that in general, there is definitely a truth to the fact that a lot of this continues over time. Um, I mean, you could see it like before the pandemic started at, at, um, at Trump rallies, right? I mean, music was this huge um, la- like notoriously loud aspect of Trump rallies that you know would bring all these people together who felt like no one agreed with them, but put them in the same place where they could connect with one another. And one of the main things that they were doing was listening to music. And there is this sense that like, how bad can a movement be? How immoral could anything be if what we're fundamentally doing is getting together and singing? or listening to music and enjoying ourselves. Like there is something fundamentally um, wholesome about that activity. And once you connect that activity to a political cause, there is this desire to ascribe the wholesomeness of, of, of music and singing to whatever political cause that is. Um, and, and so um, I do think that there is this sort of uh, through line um, to the significance of, of how music um, got positioned into being that kind of cultural marker. And then it did kind of set a, a precedent for it to be keep, to keep using it in that way. Well, I think that's about all for now. Um, so thank you, Billy Coleman. Again, the book is Harnessing Harmony, Music, Power, and Politics in the United States, 1788 to 1865. It's a it's a fresh take um, that really places uh, culture and music in the center of American antebellum political development in a really fascinating way. And I encourage everyone to check it out. If only, if not only, but definitely check it out for the front cover. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Thanks so much, Sam.